Well, I confess when I uh, picked up my uh, schedule for the preachments whether, that I was rather worried that I'd been chosen to preach on All Fool's Day. I wasn't quite sure uh, whether there was any significance that I was here on April Fool's Day, but I am. I did then consider the possibility of using the opportunity on April Fool's Day that I could have decided not to preach at all, and that would have pleased a few, no doubt. Or I could have decided to preach for two hours, and that would have pleased even fewer. But we'll forget April Fool's Day. And accept that, it leads in beautifully to this passage. As you turn to page 999, you see that's what they did with Jesus. They made a fool of him. Or they tried, the soldiers, as they mocked him, King Jesus. I don't know about you, I actually find it almost impossible to enter into what Jesus suffered when he was crucified. I can't get into the physical agony of it. Not possible. I certainly can't get into what went through the mind of Jesus when he cried, My God, my God, why did you leave me? He who'd been with God from all eternity and was separated by sin, by bearing our sin, that I can't enter into. I just bow in adoration. But I can enter into what it was like to be taunted and mocked. I would be surprised if you as a Christian have not had moments when you've been thought a fool for Christ's sake. This week ago, last Sunday morning, I was preaching back in Blackburn where Margaret and I met. The church I was baptised, confirmed, we were married in. The actual church building's now gone. They've got a smaller place. So there's no church. There's a little plaque saying Philip and Margaret Hacking were married here on any date. So... That's forgotten. But uh, it was really quite moving to be standing preaching in more or less the same spot where on Maundy Thursday, 1951, second term at university finished, I had God speak to me in a very special way. You see, I'd had two terms at university uh, because I was a Christian. I went to Bible studies and prayer meetings. That was the right thing to do. But I was also quite keen on sport and I had lots of friends there and I didn't want the two lots of friends to meet. Uh, so I had two lives and lived them very successfully to two terms till I arrived at that Maundy uh, Thursday communion service. In those days it was still the old prayer book and we stood for the gospel. It was a very long gospel, I remember. But all the time God was speaking about the cross. And Jesus said to me quite clearly as I stood in that spot and I was there again last week, he said to me very, very clearly, Philip, when I died, I didn't die in a, a private place with my grief, nor did I die with my friends holding my hands and loving me. When I died, they were actually taunting me even as I died. They made a fool of me. <laughs> he saved others. Let him save himself. Hail King Jesus. If I went that, through that for you, what price you're being thought a fool for me? I made a vow on that Monday, Thursday evening that I would never again be ashamed of Jesus. Well, you know, we're all frail and I haven't always kept that vow, but it was a very important turning point in my life. You see, I didn't like being thought a fool. 
I didn't want my friends to sneer at me. And yet, when I come to Scripture, that happened. You see, they, they, they preached the cross of Christ crucified and Paul said, it's foolishness. Paul knew how foolish it was. He, a highly intellectual man, who could have argued philosophically with anybody, would stand up in front of the Areopagus, that is the Athenian philosophers, the big men of their age, and he could have debated with them and they'd thought, what a marvellous mind that man has. But he didn't. He preached Christ, crucified, risen, and it says in Acts 17, they sneered at him. And so we're there. Are you prepared to be a fool for Christ? Don't you realise that Palm Sunday is a strange knife edge, isn't it? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was ridiculous if it wasn't the glorious fulfilment of Scripture. It was almost foolish. This you don't come to demonstrate your king by riding on a donkey. But it all fitted with what was going to happen at the cross. Years and years ago, in my Edinburgh days, I was... uh, trying to help an academic lady who got a degree at London School of Economics to faith. Incidentally, she actually came to faith eventually when she had unexpectedly a baby and she told me she had thanked the God she didn't believe in when the baby came and she suddenly realised what a hypocrite she'd been. And she, the intellectual giant, became a Christian because of a baby born. But in, in the days of debate with her, I remember one occasion she said, can I come and watch a communion service? She was quite a pagan. She'd never been to a communion service in her life, so she watched. And after it was over, I said, now, tell me, what do you make of that? I'd rather hoped she would have thought it was impressive. I thought it was. She said, I've never seen anything so foolish in all my life. You grown-up people walking out, kneeling down, taking a bit of bread, sipping from a cup, very unhygienic, you know. Uh, What was that all about? And I realised for this lady... She would love to debate, and she did all the important things about the reality of God. Is there a God? All the problem of suffering. But the idea that I have to kneel down and take a bit of bread as a symbol of taking Christ was anathema to her. The cross was foolishness. And as we come to the end of this little series, you've got this passage in front of you now. It's a, a passage that speaks very clearly, but in a sense speaks very simply In a way, these men were the least guilty, weren't they? You've seen a long list of people who'd betrayed him, our Lord's friends, Pilate, the the leaders of the Jewish community. They were more guilty. But these men were just doing their job, weren't they? That's all it was. You could hardly blame them too much. And it was with these men in mind that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus said from the cross those amazing words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He wasn't just praying for them. I'm thankful he was praying for me too. But Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, would say, or just after the day of Pentecost, would say that the Jews had offered him up out of ignorance. I think Peter was being too kind. But these people were ignorant, these soldiers, and yet they made a fool of Jesus. May I for a few minutes then, as we look at it, say, where are we in all this? You see, if you see yourself at all, and I see myself, I am much more guilty than these soldiers. But I do hope you enter into the awfulness of that moment when my Jesus, your Jesus, went through all this for me. And then, 
I always want people to think I'm good and nice and respectable and I don't want my friends ever to jeer at me. Four simple things. First, it was the next job. That's what it was for these men. It was the next job. They, they'd done many crucifixions. They'd got another crucifixion. And if you're doing that kind of job, well, you've got to do something different. Eventually, we'll see they had a, a little game and played games with Jesus. But they did more than that. We, it's not in this passage, but in, in the John passage, John 19, they cast dice. They played lottery. They had their casino around the cross. This was fun. He'd left a robe behind. Let's toss, let's cast uh, lots for it and fulfill that remarkable Psalm 22 that we had read to us. How amazing that way back in those days the psalmist could speak of somebody whose garment would be divided and they cast lots and it happened at the cross. They were just doing their job and so they had a bit of merriment as they did their job. They didn't have time to work out what was going on. It was just a job. Can I suggest to you that's the first thing that this passage speaks to me about? How easy it is when we're going through the business of life just to be doing our job. We haven't got time to bother too much about these other things. I've got a lot to think about. I've got my work to think about, my future to think about. And the cross, well, it's peripheral, it's there, and every year Good Friday comes, but, well, there are more important things in life. What I also find intriguing is that very often... Our worries, not just about our jobs, we're too busy with our leisure and our pleasure. I read at uh, 9.15 some words from Amos 6, and I got my instruments wrong. I talked about strumming violins. You don't strum violins, apparently. It was the harp they strummed, I'm sorry. And, they, um, and Amos, in Amos chapter 6, talks about people so busy drinking their wine, playing their instruments, having a great time together, they don't grieve. For the ruin of Joseph. There are very many people in our world for whom this Good Friday will pass without any significance, but I'm not preaching to them, I'm preaching to us. How easy it is to be so worried about the way I get on in life and my pleasures in life. We even talk about leisure industries to have no time to think about him and the cross. Just one last meditation about going back to my hometown in Blackburn. Uh, interesting, one of the things, one of the, when you go back to a place you've not been to for years, you see one or two people there, you thought they died. And there's no worse introduction to a conversation than to say, oh, I thought you were dead. It doesn't <laughs> help very well, the conversation. Well, I got through that one. But what I, when I went back to that, I remembered... You'll not believe this, but I did actually sing solos in those days in the choir. And we sang every other year the crucifixion. And the other, every other year we sang Olivet to Calgary. Those were the days. And uh, I, I had to sing the solos of the crucifixion. But I remember, this wasn't a solo. In the crucifixion, Stainer has the, the words that come from lamentation. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? I could almost sing it for you, but I won't. Uh, Wonderful words. And Stainer, very wisely, or the person who put the words together, took the words from Lamentation, which is all to do with the city of Jerusalem lying in ruins. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Don't you care what this has done for me? And I want to bring it with Stainer to us today. He saw it as a cross. Is it nothing to you, or you that pass by? How much are we moved by the fact that our Saviour 
went through all this, even before the agony of the crucifixion, for me, and my mind, even as I'm preaching now, is so easily worried about secondary matters. The, the next job. But secondly, it was a big joke, wasn't it? That's what it was, a big joke. So there in verse 28, they strip him, they put the scarlet robe, they make a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they gave him a staff, they made him look like a king. You see, they never crucified a king before. They were used to the other two on the crosses. They were the normal lot. And they'd understood Barabbas, who should have been on that middle cross. He was another terrorist. Well-meaning, no doubt, but a terrorist. And they had no time to worry about them. But the king, this was different. They'd never crucified a king before. So they played games. Made him a parody of a king. And knelt. Hail. King Jesus. If you put the gospel stories together, when you get in John's gospel, it's at this point that Pilate takes Jesus with wearing his crown of thorns and his purple robe, looking bedraggled, and he says to the crowd, Behold the man, ecce homo. And he spoke wiser than he knew. But what he really meant was, Do you really want any more? Hasn't this man gone through enough? And that's my saviour, the creator of this universe. And he's presented as a parodied Jesus. Now, well, that's all right. That's a long time ago. Does it not bother you that people still make jibes about Jesus and we take it? That Jesus becomes a, a, a figure of fun? Do you know, the thing that hurt me most... Did you know that there was a pornographic poem, a blasphemous poem, written about this Jesus and this centurion? Jesus supposed to have a homosexual relationship with this centurion. And this banned pornographic poem was being portrayed at the Gay and Lesbian Christian Association. And I, my days of chairman of reform, had to read it. And for any of you who think these things don't matter, you ought to read it. Blasphemous, pornographic. And then they complain that we protest. If you don't protest about that kind of thing, you have no soul. Jesus, a homosexual relationship with a centurion by his side? May God have mercy on their soul. But you see, that's the kind of thing we, we live with. You mustn't protest about it, you're rocking the boat. I just wish we wouldn't get, out, get our heads out of the sand. Do we, are we happy that people make that kind of sick joke about Jesus? I could say more, but I won't. But I, what I will say is that in the God has the last laugh, Psalm 2, those who mock him one day face the God who has the last laugh. Now, when in that church in Blackburn, in 1951, I made my renewed vow to the Lord. Some words came to me, and half a, half a verse came to me. The verse that came to me was Mark 8:38. If any man is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory. Now, I knew that bit, but I missed a bit out. And I didn't know it then. It says, if any man is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. 
Please note the and of my words. You see, there are very many people who would say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I think he was a wonderful person, a great teacher, a wonderful man. But I don't really believe in this idea of dying on a cross, bearing our sins, a substitution on our place. No, no, that's old hat. But you see, then you're ashamed of his words. Or there are those who want to say, there was a conference in Sheffield recently on why they don't believe Jesus Christ is a unique way to God. That's a, a, a church that's supporting that kind of message. Well, of course, I believe he's the only way to God because he said so. And if I do not believe he is the way, the truth, and the life, I am ashamed of his words. It's as simple as that. And if I'm ashamed of his words, I'm ashamed of him. Or I don't believe in hell. But he did. Now, you see, this is the mocking Jesus being ashamed of him. I am like most people. I hate being different. I want everybody to like me. Isn't that natural? But I found the way of the cross. I still find people who find it very odd that some of us still believe in the basic simplicities of the gospel. Somebody, the nice thing about preaching a sermon twice is you get comments in between from some people. And one person coming out at the 9.15, it was very helpful, said that he, and I know he's a person of considerable intellectual ability, said he spent so long in his life trying to make the gospel sound rational. And in so doing, he's been ashamed of the cross. And he wanted to say thank you to me for bringing him back to where he ought to be. We want it to be rational. We want it to sound reasonable. We want people who don't want to repent to feel happy with the message we preach. And in so doing, we're ashamed. The big joke, the next job, they're all J's, just two more. The coming joy. There's a lovely bit that goes on, if you jump on to verse 54, there's a lovely bit that goes on after this story. The, the people who did this, the people who put Jesus on the cross, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Now, I have no idea how much theology went into that. I doubt terribly much. What I do know is this centurion... I don't know if you remember. Those who are old enough to remember, there was a book called The Robe and a film called The Robe. And we built a great deal about, around this centurion. A bit fanciful, but it was okay for its time. What we do know is the centurion acknowledged that this was this King Jesus, the one they had mocked, was actually, was, the Son of God. It all fitted with the events that were happening. The cry from the cross the earthquake, and all these other remarkable things. And uh, the only hope for these mockers was the death of the one they mocked. So that Peter on the day of Pentecost can say this extraordinary comment in Acts 2.23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. I don't suppose the Roman soldiers heard Peter preach that. He wasn't primarily preaching about them. In fact, the odd thing is that of the thousands of people who heard him that day, not one single one had nailed him to the cross. And yet, they were there in the sense spiritual as I was there and you were there. 
And the crowning joy is that these mockers could actually come to faith. You, many of you know that I have a, a great respect for William Grimshaw, the rector of Howarth. Can I ask, next time you go to Howarth on a trip, will you go to the Bronte Museum and ask them, have they any details about William Grimshaw? They'll get quite annoyed at you, but it's, it's rather nice, because they think the only vicar of Howarth worth mentioning is Bronte, who's only claimed to fame was he had two, two daughters who could write books. Uh, but uh, William Grimshaw was a great preacher. A wonderful man. The church was packed to the gunnels. It's a great book. Faith Cook's story of William Grimshaw, worth reading. And the, this is the point I want to make. William Grimshaw went over the hill into Lancashire, the next parish in Cone, where I've played cricket more than once in days gone by. He went into Cone and he preached the gospel in a parish where the vicar spent all his time in London at the gaming houses. And the, the vicar of Cone set the police on to Grimshaw because he was trespassing on somebody else's parish. And that is a sin beyond sin. The fact the vicar of that parish was busy dicing in London didn't seem to matter. And the, the police were set on William Grimshaw. And William Grimshaw wrote a letter. If you read the book, you'll see the exact words. And it went something like this. He wrote to the vicar of Cone, Dear sir, it ill behoves you who spend your time gaming in London to condemn me for preaching the gospel to your benighted souls who have no spiritual leader. I intend to continue as long as I've got breath in my body. God bless William Grimshaw. There's a lovely end to that story. When the vicar of Colm, an unconverted vicar as ever there was one, came back to Colm to die, he sent for William Grimshaw to lead him to Christ. And on his deathbed, the man he'd mocked led him to the Saviour who'd been mocked on his behalf. That's history. That's 200 years ago. But nothing changes. Did you know that in those days the Methodists, the Wesleyans, and Grimshaw who stayed in the Church of England were all condemned for being, this is the word they used, enthusiasts. Apparently being an enthusiast is a, is a bad thing. I confess to being an enthusiast and I shall be to my dying day and I do not apologise one whit. But that was the word they used, enthusiasts. Oh, you mustn't do that kind of thing. You see, the respectable, polite society doesn't like enthusiasts. Not about Christianity, in any rate. Nothing a great has changed. In Christ's words of forgiveness, there is hope for the centurion and his soldiers and the vicar of Colm and every one of us. One last word, the final judgment. It's an unusual passage I've given you. I haven't actually taken it verse by verse to expound. I don't think it asks for that. It's just a picture. And it comes to the end of a series you've been doing. I've not been here. I've been out preaching elsewhere, so I've not been here for the rest of the series, but I know you've been going through all these pictures of Jesus being despised and rejected. And for all of them, there will be a day when they will stand before the judgment seat of the one they put on the cross. I think of Pilate, who asked that great question, the crucial moment, what shall I do with Jesus? called the Christ there's an old fashioned hymn we don't sing anymore but it went something like this what will you do with Jesus neutral you cannot be one day your heart will be asking what will he do with me 
in a few minutes, we're going to sing a lovely modern song, one of the great songs of Stuart Townend. We're going to sing a song which will remind us that I heard my mocking voice among the scoffers. That all of us are there with these soldiers and we need his forgiveness. We shall stand before that judgment seat one day. And as I finish, you see, this is a challenge, isn't it? Isn't that why on the day of Pentecost, Peter, preaching to that crowd of people, told them to repent and be baptized because God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Acts 2.36, this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And because none of them had crucified him, I can say the same to you today. They hadn't actually done it. They weren't the soldiers who did it, but they were implied by the very lives they lived. I did it. And so did you. And the challenge comes to us quite simply, one if I recognise that it was my sin that put him there, have I repented of those sins? Secondly, do I ever cherish the sins that put him there? That should have been nailed to the cross and I bring them back? Do I even dare to say the sins that Jesus died to forgive aren't sins anymore? And crucify him afresh? And thirdly, am I willing to be a fool for his sake? And on this April Fool's Day, with the final judgment there, Paul could say in front of this Areopagus, this highly intellectual crowd, God has appointed a day when he would judge the world by the man who died and has been risen. When I think of the courage of that man Paul, opportunity of standing in front of these important people and he dared to challenge them to repent and he preached about judgment. May God give me, in the years I still have left, a bit more courage to preach it too. Please, can I ask you on this April Fool's Day, don't be a fool. Repent. And then be willing to be a fool. For Christ's sake. Let's pray. <clears throat> we recognize that the message of the cross is foolishness. And so quietly, Father, we come to you and ask that we not, we not be ashamed to confess that faith. <clears throat> Whatever people may say, we shall stand true. Help us to recognize that our mocking voice is among the scoffers. Forgive us where we haven't taken Jesus seriously. Forgive us when we've been ashamed of the cross and all that it means. Renew our courage. Help us to be willing to be fools for your sake. And above all, may we so respond to the one who suffered so much for us that we might have hope for that final day when we shall stand before the Lamb upon the throne, bearing the marks that these men put on his body. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, 
May I love you more. May I know you more clearly. Love you more dearly. And follow you more nearly. For your name's sake. Amen.